is just not fair. It's just not fair. Maybe you found yourself saying that more and more recently. A few weeks back it was, it's just not fair. I want to go out of the house more than once a day. Then maybe it became, it's just not fair. We want our children to see their grandparents. Now it could be, it's just not fair. I can't lose my job now and others keep theirs. Or it's just not fair, lockdown, it's affected me more than it has you. It's just not fair. It's just not fair. If anyone has grounds to say it's just not fair, it's Mordecai in chapter three. Let's have a brief recap of where we're at from last week. Remember where we left off? King Xerxes, he rules this huge and impressive looking empire in the way of the world. But behind the scenes, he's consumed by operating that way. He's weak and he's paranoid. And in trying to replace Queen Vashti with a new queen, he promotes the Jew, Esther, to queen. And her cousin Mordecai happens to overhear the plot to kill the king. Mordecai communicates with Esther, he communicates with the king, who effectively together save his life. Mordecai is given the credit that he deserves, and it's recorded in the Book of Annals, the king's public diary. That's how chapter two ended. So when you get to chapter three, it looks like it all makes sense. The story's following on. Chapter three begins, after these events, King Xerxes honoured Mordecai. Or at least that's what you'd expect. But no, did you see there? The shock, verse one. But after these events, King Xerxes honoured Haman. Well, who is Haman? Why is he being honoured? What's he done? That's just not fair. God, what are you doing? Mordecai is one of your people. That's, I'm sure, what Mordecai would have been feeling when he sees Haman being promoted. And actually, we see in the next few verses that it's not just a slight overlooking here. But there's an underlying hatred of God's people. Firstly, then we're going to see God's people are hated. Enter onto the scene Haman. He promoted Haman, son of Hamadetha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honour higher than all of the other nobles. And you'll notice that as the characters are introduced through the story, The first thing that's recorded about them is pretty important. That's a feature of that era of writing. And we see it with Mordecai. It said, now there was was in the citadel of Susa, a Jew. It's the first thing we learn. Sometimes we do it. We introduce someone specifically to feed the point, to give some kind of explanation of why they're on the scene. It's always interesting when someone's interviewed on television, isn't it? to see what they get printed on their little scroller bar. Normally it's kind of a list of credentials for someone. Recently, like this guy's been professor whoever, epidemiologist. That's why they're on your TV screen. Well, here, our introduction to Haman 
is done for just that reason. We're introduced to Haman, son of Hamadetha, the Agagite. His little scroller bar would read, the Agagite, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, in bold. And at that point, we're meant to boo and hiss. He's an Agagite. But if you're anything like me, reading it for the first time, you'd have said, what is an Agagite? Well, Agag was the king of the Amalekites in the days of King Saul, years and years before. And God announced to Saul that he'd punish the Amalekites for waylaying the Israelites on their way out of Egypt. They had this massive battle that slowed the Israelites down. And actually, it's a rival between God's people and the Amalekites that goes way, way back. In Exodus 17, the Lord, it says, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. So what we see through the whole of the Old Testament is, is this fierce rivalry unfolding over generations. Mordecai, he's one of God's people, but he's, he's a descendant of Saul. And so in this story, what we see is once again, God's people are opposed by Amalekites. So really, uh, all that means to say is that the most notable information that we get about Haman, the thing that characterizes him as he's introduced to the, to the story, the thing on his scroller bar, is that he hates God's people. And yet, he's elevated to a seat of honour. Somehow. And people were expected to kneel before him and show him honour. It's just not fair. Not only is Mordecai forgotten about, but promoted is a sworn enemy. What's God doing? Why is he letting this happen? Well, in the midst of the madness, Mordecai is maybe not the most sensible. Look at the end of verse two. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Now, we're not really told why Mordecai's refusing to comply. We're not told his motives. It could be that he was taking a stand against a sworn enemy. It could be that he was jealous of the recognition that Haman got, that he wanted. It could be that he thought it would honour God to not respect that authority of the Agagite. But it seems unlikely that he's doing it on decent moral grounds at this point, because we don't really know much more about Haman. And in that context, in that culture, bowing down, it probably wasn't a sign of worship but more of respect one of my schools growing up you had to stand up when a teacher entered the room it was just normal occasionally a teacher would come in midway through a class and everyone would stand up and they'd say sit down that was just normal it was a show of respect i think i'd have done quite well to claim that i couldn't do that on religious grounds it was just respect and in here, sure, Haman was probably a nasty piece of work. But Mordecai doesn't seem to be making a wise decision to be stubborn. But one thing is absolutely certain. One thing's for sure about Haman. Haman hates Jews. 
It's so obvious. It's about God's people. He hates God's people. Look at verse 6. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. See what he's saying? Don't just kill Mordecai. Let's try and find a way to eradicate all of God's people. Hated for being God's people. That's Haman's stance. Hated for being God's people. Maybe you'd never put it that strongly. Hated. But maybe at times you might have faced hostility for being one of God's people. Being slightly left out of social situations for being a Christian. Not get treated at work the same way because of your faith. Maybe you have been bullied by friends or family because you've said you follow Jesus. We'd maybe not quickly use that word hated, would we? But perhaps around the world it's more clear. God's people are facing hatred still. This picture coming up on the screen is Nasser Goltape. He lives in Persia today in a prison cell. He's facing a 10-year prison sentence for being found to be leading a group of Christians. And he wrote this week from his prison cell about how a change to Iranian law, Persia, the Iranian law will lead to greater persecutions for Christians in Iran. He explains how the wording of the law will make a significant impact, saying this. This is the words of the Lord. Deviant educational or propaganda activities that contradict or interfere with Islamic teachings in ways such as making false claims can be punished with imprisonment, flogging, fines, or even the death penalty. Do you hear that? Deviant educational activities that interfere with Islamic teachings could be punished with imprisonment, floggings, fines, or the death penalty. Christians are hated to the point of death and imprisonment all around the world in their thousands. And it's only by God's grace that we don't face the same level of hostility here. But it doesn't take long reading on the Christian Concern website where Biblical teaching is under threat, and it doesn't take long on Twitter to see where a Christian stance is hated. Marriage, gender, education, sexuality, freedom of speech, beginning of life, end of life. These areas will expect in years to come hatred. And the Bible says we will experience opposition if we choose to follow Jesus. But you see, here in Esther, at this point in the story, this hatred is looking like it could threaten the existence of God's people for all time. See who it was he was trying to target? The whole of God's covenant people throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. That's basically the whole of God's people. This here, in this moment, it's like the whole Bible storyline hanging by a thread because God's people are hated. 
And secondly, we see God's people are targeted. So here's Haman. He's got his plan and he wants to follow through with it. What does he do? He goes to what would have been normal at the time. He goes to roll the dice or whatever it was to see when the lucky day was to exterminate God's people. Look at verse seven. In the 12th year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the poor, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the 12th month, the month of Adar. We'll come back to the significance of when it's going to happen. But look, Haman's just employing all the superstition he can to try and get the job done. And so with that process, he goes to the king and he appeals to the authority in the empire. The grounds on which God's people must be killed. And here are the four claims he makes about them. Look, here they are coming up on the screen. Number one, there is a certain people dispersed. Number two, they keep themselves separate. Their customs are different. Number three, they do not obey the king's laws. Number four, it's not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. That's Haman's four propositions against those people. He comes to the king with them. And do you notice what he's done? He's gone from truth to half-truth to outright lie. Look at number one. There is a certain people dispersed. Well, it's true. There is a certain people dispersed. But he's, it's truth stated in sinister terms. You can imagine exactly how he said it. There's certain people dispersed among your people. Number two, they keep themselves separate. Their customs are different. Well, sure, maybe there's an element of truth about that. They might go about things slightly differently. But keep themselves separate one's a civil servant and the other's the queen they're not exactly a threat in how they're separating themselves his third point they do not obey the king's laws well that's just an outright lie esther's been obedient possibly to the detriment of her faith all along the way fourth it's not in the king's best interest to tolerate them well that is an absolute lie it's exactly that do you remember Mordecai saved his life what more is there you could do in the interests of someone than to save their life Haman's gone from truth straight uh, stated in sinister terms to outright lie as he's tried to manipulate the king to convince him of his plan now let's notice what's unavoidable here in the way of the world, God's people will always attract some degree of hatred. And in the way of the world, living by a different standard will always attract some degree of targeting. So if we're to call ourselves followers of Jesus, we will always be a certain people dispersed, as Haman would say. There will always be people that don't like that, that find that a threat. And if we choose to follow Jesus, rather than going after the things of this world, going after money, sex and power, image, success and achievement as our ultimate things that we're going after, there will always be people that say, 
their customs are different. They're doing life wrong. But points three and four, they're not quite so straightforward. Do you notice how Haman went from being able to appeal to the king on truth to really having to twist things to lie? Haman says God's people do not obey the king's laws. Now remember, Mordecai didn't bow in respect. That was probably unwise. It gave Haman something to work with because generally speaking, it's not true of how God's people have operated in the way of the world there. Esther was obedient to the law of the land. Mordecai was operating in some official capacity as a civil servant. But it looks like Mordecai's decision not to bow, it's given Haman an opportunity to twist it. You see, there's a real danger that as Christians, we're so conscious of being different that we might withdraw beyond the point that we need to. We might draw lines of legalism that just aren't there. I recently had a conversation about Christian clothing. It was a bit of fun, really. We talked about hoodies and T-shirts. They seem to flow in and out of Christian fashion, don't they? Whatever that is, Christian fashion. But I've seen one in particular that it always grates me a little bit. It's a load of fish and then one fish swimming the other way. You might have seen it. And it says at the bottom, I'm going against the flow. And I get the sentiment. The Christian is different. They're living by a different standard. That's a really good thing. But the danger is that we get into a mindset of me against the world. Take on everything. Be different for different sake. Show and tell everyone that I am different. But then people might quickly get a misconception about what Christianity is. What does the t-shirt say to your friend, a colleague, a family member who doesn't trust in Jesus? Is there a possibility that that t-shirt attracts hatred that isn't needed? The Bible calls us to be different, not just for the sake of being different, but for the purpose of honouring God. Look, maybe Mordecai could have, in good conscience, kneeled before Haman as a follower of God. And the fourth point, Haman's fourth claim, it's purely an emotive appeal. He says to the king, it's in your best interest not to tolerate them. It's, of course, factually incorrect. Mordecai's literally saved the king's life. You can't do any more for someone's interest, but you can just imagine how Haman said that. Well, you know what? Mordecai and his people, they're just hassle. They're not worth it, king. Honestly, king, it's in your best interest to get rid of them. I wonder, could that be said of you? By your boss? someone at your sports club, in your social group, friend, family member, that Christian, it's in your best interest not to tolerate them. That Christian, they're more hassle than they're good for. Because we shouldn't be looking to be disliked. We shouldn't be going out of our way for controversy and confrontation. Because this passage is clear. God's people will be targeted for being different. 
God's people will face hatred. But the challenge for us to think about is, is that for being different in the right regard? Well, thirdly, we see God's pe- God is still at work behind the scenes. See, we can talk all day about whether Mordecai was wise or foolish, faithful or rebellious, but it's clear he wasn't perfect. And that's just the thing. What he did is not the main point. In Mordecai's weakness, God was still at work behind the scenes. And maybe you think at this point, surely God's going to step in, strike people down, say something. That wouldn't be too out of keeping with the Old Testament, would it? And here, this is the most important time to have. The whole of his people, they're on the verge of being massacred. If God's going to step in, surely he's going to do it now. Maybe you feel like that in your own life. Or you have done in the past. Surely now's the moment for God to step in and do something. It can't get any worse than this. Why is God not doing anything? In your work? In your job situation? In your marriage? In your health? In some other area? Why isn't God stepping in to change my circumstances? Well, here, in the defining moment of Haman's decision, we're meant to see that God is at work behind the scenes. See, while the camera is pointed on Haman and Mordecai, the story is undoubtedly all about God. Look at verse 7. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the poor was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month, and the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. So Xerxes um, so, so Haman rolls a dice type thing and somehow he rolls a 13th of January. Haman is set on, the, on exterminating God's people with deception and manipulation. But he goes down to the wire with rolling a dice. That's his plan. That's the way it would unfold for him. But it's interesting. The Old Testament has a verse that explains all about chance. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33 says, The lot is cast in the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. See, when God seems absent, and it looks as, it, as bad as it could possibly be for God's people, he's at work behind the scenes. There's 12 months before the threat is to be carried out, 12 months in which God has a plan. There's a right time for Haman's plan to come to a head. Haman might think it's down to chance, but nothing is down to luck in God's world. God has shown time and time again to be at work for the good of his people. Through the Old Testament, he's shown time and time again, but ultimately he's shown it by what Jesus did on this earth. See, Jesus was hated and targeted by the powers that be in the way of the world, but God was at work behind the scenes with a deliberate plan to rescue his people. Here's what Acts 22 uh, 2 verse 23 says. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. See, when it looked helpless and hopeless for Jesus, it was in God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. The next verse says, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Out of the hopeless situation of Jesus' death, 
God rescues his people for all time. Here we see out of the hopeless situation of the impending extermination of the Jews, God rescues his people. So what about when we get bad news now? How are we to cope? Well, what might look like bad news isn't really bad news at all. The Jews found out about the bad news the day before what would have been the Passover. The day before their special day, when they received the news. It was a bit like Christmas Eve. Now I know what you're thinking. Sounds like the worst time to get bad news. A few years ago, Elise and I got a phone call on Christmas Eve saying we had an unpaid bill for more than a thousand pounds. It was legitimate, not a scam. However, there had been a misreading. It just wasn't fair. It was awful timing, it was bad news. I can tell you for a fact, finding out the day before Christmas didn't make it any better. But here, God's people find out the day before Passover. What does that mean? Well, the day that they remember God's rescue. They're to remember that God is a rescuing God. See, right now you might say your situation is not fair. You might say you'd never have chosen the situation that you find yourself right now. You might say, I've got rotten luck. You might be thinking, why on earth is God doing that? God, why don't you help me? Why don't you step in? Well, the lot is cast in the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. It might even be that you're facing injustice, even for being a Christian. Well, God is at work behind the scenes. And it might even be that you've made bad decisions. You haven't been sensible or wise. It might be that you feel guilty for things you've done in the past. You might be worried about how you could possibly pull yourself out of your current situation. Well, God is at work behind the scenes. And his rescue isn't dependent on how sensible or planned or shrewd his people are. His rescue is dependent on his character. See, whatever situation you find yourself in right now, your response doesn't need to be bitter. It's not fair. It doesn't need to be despair. What could I possibly do? But we can trust in a God who is at work behind the scenes for the good of his people. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that we can have complete confidence that you are at work behind the scenes. Even when things at first glance look absolutely awful, we can trust in your deliverance. Father, thank you that you deliver your people time and time again, and you've shown that ultimately in what you've done in Jesus. Please, would you help us to trust that? Amen.